Section 9 of The Arabian Nights Entertainments, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Chris Tierney. The Arabian Nights Entertainments, Volume 1, by Anonymous, translated by Dr. Jonathan Scott. Section 9. The Story of the Vizier That Was Punished. There was a king who had a son that loved hunting. He allowed him to pursue that diversion often, but gave orders to his grand vizier always to attend him. One hunting day, the huntsman having roused a deer, the prince, who thought the vizier followed him, pursued the game so far, and with so much earnestness, that he separated himself from the company. Perceiving he had lost his way, he stopped, and endeavored to return to the vizier, but not knowing the country, he wandered farther. Whilst he was thus riding about, he met on his way a handsome lady, who wept bitterly. He stopped his horse, and inquired who she was, how she came to be alone in that place, and what she wanted. "'I am,' replied she, "'the daughter of an Indian king. As I was taking the air on horseback in the country, I grew sleepy, and fell from my horse who is run away, and I know not what is become of him.' The young prince, taking compassion on her, requested her to get up behind him, which she willingly did. As they were passing by the ruins of a house, the lady expressed a desire to alight. The prince stopped, and having put her down, dismounted himself, and went near the building, leading his horse after him. But you may judge how much he was surprised when he heard the pretended lady utter these words, "'Be glad, my children, I bring you a young man for your repast.' and other voices which answered immediately, "'Where is he, for we are very hungry?' The prince heard enough to convince him of his danger. He perceived that the lady, who called herself the daughter of an Indian king, was one of those savage demons called gulls who live in desolated places, and employ a thousand wiles to surprise passengers whom they afterwards devour. The prince instantly remounted his horse and luckily escaped." The pretended princess appeared that very moment, and perceiving she had missed her prey, exclaimed, "'Fear nothing, prince. Who are you? Whom do you seek?' "'I have lost my way,' replied he, "'and am endeavouring to find it.' "'If you have lost your way,' said she, "'recommend yourself to God. He will deliver you out of your perplexity.' After the counterfeit Indian princess had bidden the young prince recommend himself to God, he could not believe she spoke sincerely, but thought herself sure of him, and therefore lifting up his hands to heaven, said, Almighty Lord, cast thine eyes upon me, and deliver me from this enemy. After this prayer, the goal entered the ruins again, and the prince rode off with all possible haste. He happily found his way, and arrived safe at the court of his father, to whom he gave a particular account of the danger he had been in through the vizier's neglect upon which the king, being incensed against that minister, ordered him to be immediately strangled. Sir, continued the Grecian king's vizier, to return to the physician Duban, if you do not take care, the confidence you put in him will be fatal to you. I am very well assured that he is a spy sent by your enemies to attempt your majesty's life. He has cured you, you will say, but alas, who can assure you of that? 
he has perhaps cured you only in appearance and not radically who knows but the medicine he has given you may in time have pernicious effects the grecian king was not able to discover the wicked design of his vizier nor had he firmness enough to persist in his first opinion this discourse staggered him vizier said he thou art in the right he may become on purpose to take away my life which he may easily do by the smell of his drugs when the vizier found the king in such a temper as he wished sir said he the surest and speediest method you can take to secure your life is to send immediately for the physician duban and order his head to be struck off in truth said the king i believe that is the way we must take to frustrate his design when he had spoken thus he called for one of his officers and ordered him to go for the physician who knowing nothing of the king's purpose came to the palace in haste knowest thou said the king when he saw him why i sent for thee no sir answered he i wait till your majesty be pleased to inform me i sent for thee replied the king to rid myself of thee by taking away thy life no man can express the surprise of the physician when he heard the sentence of death pronounced against him sir said he why would your majesty take my life what crime have i committed i am informed replied the king that you came to my court only to attempt my life but to prevent you i will be sure of yours give the blow said he to the executioner who was present and deliver me from a perfidious wretch who came hither on purpose to assassinate me when the physician heard this cruel order he readily judged that the honours and presents he had received from the king had procured him enemies and that the weak prince was imposed on he repented that he had cured him of his leprosy but it was now too late is it thus asked the physician that you reward me for curing you the king would not hearken to him but a second time ordered the executioner to strike the fatal blow the physician then had recourse to his prayers alas sir cried he prolong my days and god will prolong yours do not put me to death lest god treat you in the same manner the fisherman broke off his discourse here to apply it to the genie well genie said he you see that what passed betwixt the grecian king and his physician duban is acted just now by us the grecian king continued he instead of having regard to the prayers of the physician who begged him to spare his life cruelly replied no no i must of necessity cut you off otherwise you may assassinate with as much art as you cured me the physician without bewailing himself for being so ill rewarded by the king prepared for death the executioner tied his hands and was going to draw his scimitar the courtiers who were present being moved with compassion begged the king to pardon him assuring his majesty that he was not guilty of the crime laid to his charge and that they would answer for his innocence but the king was inflexible the physician being on his knees his eyes tied up and ready to receive the fatal blow addressed himself once more to the king sir said he since your majesty will not revoke the sentence of death i beg at least that you would give me leave to return to my house to give orders about my burial to bid farewell to my family to give alms and to bequeath my books to those who are capable of making good use of them 
I have one particularly I would present to your majesty. It is a very precious book and worthy of being laid up carefully in your treasury. What is it, demanded the king, that makes it so valuable? Sir, replied the physician, it possesses many singular and curious properties, of which the chief is that if your majesty will give yourself the trouble to open it at the sixth leaf and read the third line of the left page, my head, after being cut off, will answer all the questions you ask it. The king, being curious, deferred his death till next day, and sent him home under a strong guard. The physician, during that time, put his affairs in order, and the report being spread that an unheard-of prodigy was to happen after his death, the viziers, emirs, officers of the guard, and, in a word, the whole court, repaired next day to the hall of audience, that they might be witnesses of it. The physician Duban was brought in, and advancing to the foot of the throne, with a book in his hand, he called for a basin, and laid upon it the cover in which the book was wrapped. Then, presenting the book to the king, "'Take this,' said he, "'and after my head is cut off, order that it be put into the basin upon that cover. As soon as it is placed there, the blood will stop. Then open the book, and my head will answer your questions.' but permit me once more to implore your majesty's clemency for god's sake grant my request i protest to you that i am innocent your prayers answered the king are in vain and were it for nothing but to hear your head speak after your death it is my will you should die as he said this he took the book out of the physician's hand and ordered the executioner to do his duty the head was so dexterously cut off that it fell into the basin and was no sooner laid upon the cover of the book than the blood stopped, and to the great surprise of the king and all the spectators, it opened its eyes and said, Sir, will your majesty be pleased to open the book? The king proceeded to do so, but finding that the leaves adhered to each other, that he might turn them with more ease, he put his fingers to his mouth and wetted it with spittle. He did thus until he came to the sixth leaf, and finding no writing on the place where he was desired to look for it, Physician, said he, there is nothing written. Turn over some more leaves, replied the head. The king went on, putting always his finger to his mouth, until the poison with which each leaf was imbued, coming to have its effect, the prince found himself suddenly taken with an extraordinary fit. His eyesight failed, and he fell down at the foot of the throne in violent convulsions. When the physician Duban, or rather his head, saw that the poison had taken effect, and that the king had but a few moments to live, "'Tyrant!' it cried. "'Now you see how princes are treated who, abusing their authority, cut off innocent men. God punishes, soon or late, their injustice and cruelty.' Scarcely had the head spoken these words, when the king fell down dead, and the head itself lost what life it had." As soon as the fisherman had concluded the history of the Greek king and his physician Duban, he made the application to the genie, whom he still kept shut up in the vessel. If the Grecian king, said he, had suffered the physician to live, God would have continued his life also. But he rejected his most humble prayers, and the case is the same with thee, O genie. Could I have prevailed with thee to grant me the favor I supplicated, I should now take pity on thee. But since, notwithstanding the extreme obligation thou wast under to me, for having set thee at liberty, thou didst persist in thy design to kill me, I am obliged, in my turn, 
to be equally hard-hearted to thee. My good friend Fisherman, replied the genie, I conjure thee once more, not to be guilty of such cruelty. Consider that it is not good to avenge oneself, and that, on the other hand, it is commendable to do good for evil. Do not treat me as Imama formerly treated Ateka. And what did Imama to Ateka? inquired the fisherman. Oh, says the genie, if you have a mind to be informed, open the vessel. Do you think that I can be in a humor to relate stories in so straight a prison? I will tell you as many as you please, when you have let me out. No, said the fisherman, I will not let thee out. It is in vain to talk of it. I am just going to throw thee into the bottom of the sea. Hear me one word more, cried the genie. I promise to do thee no hurt, nay, far from that. I will show thee a way to become exceedingly rich. The hope of delivering himself from poverty prevailed with the fisherman. I could listen to thee, said he, were there any credit to be given to thy word. Swear to me by the great name of God that you will faithfully perform what you promise, and I will open the vessel. I do not believe you will dare to break such an oath. The genie swore to him, upon which the fisherman immediately took off the covering of the vessel. At that instant the smoke ascended, and the genie having resumed his form, the first thing he did was to kick the vessel into the sea. This action alarmed the fisherman. Genie, said he, will not you keep the oath you just now made? And must I say to you, as the physician Duban said to the Grecian king, Suffer me to live, and God will prolong your days. The genie laughed at the fisherman's fear, and answered, No, fisherman, be not afraid. I only did it to divert myself, and to see if thou wouldst be alarmed at it. But to convince thee that I am in earnest, take thy nets and follow me. As he spoke these words, he walked before the fisherman, who, having taken up his nets, followed him, but with some distrust. They passed by the town and came to the top of a mountain, from whence they descended into a vast plain, which brought them to a lake that lay betwixt four hills. When they reached the side of the lake, the genie said to the fisherman, Cast in thy nets and catch fish. The fisherman did not doubt of taking some, because he saw a great number in the water, but he was extremely surprised when he found they were of four colors, that is to say, white, red, blue, and yellow. He threw in his nets and brought out one of each color. Having never seen the like before, he could not but admire them, and judging that he might get a considerable sum for them, he was very joyful. Carry those fish, said the genie to him, and present them to thy sultan. He will give thee more money for them. Thou mayest come every day to fish in this lake, but I give thee warning not to throw in thy nets above once a day, otherwise thou wilt repent. Having spoken thus, he struck his foot upon the ground, which opened, and after it had swallowed him up, closed again. The fisherman being resolved to follow the genie's advice, forbore casting in his nets a second time, and returned to the town very well satisfied, and making a thousand reflections upon his adventure. He went immediately to the sultan's palace to offer his fish. The sultan was much surprised when he saw the four fish which the fisherman presented. He took them up one after another and viewed them with attention, and after having admired them a long time, "'Take those fish,' said he to his vizier, "'and carry them to the cook, whom the emperor of the Greeks has sent me. 
I cannot imagine but that they must be as good as they are beautiful. The vizier carried them as he was directed, and delivering them to the cook, said, Here are four fish just brought to the sultan. He orders you to dress them. He then returned to the sultan his master, who ordered him to give the fishermen four hundred pieces of gold of the coin of that country, which he did accordingly. The fisherman, who had never seen so much money, could scarcely believe his good fortune, but thought the whole must be a dream, until he found it otherwise, by being able to provide necessaries for his family with the produce of his fish. As soon as the sultan's cook had gutted the fish, she put them upon the fire in a frying pan, with oil, and when she thought them fried enough on one side, she turned them upon the other, but, oh monstrous prodigy, scarcely were they turned, when the wall of the kitchen divided, and a young lady of wonderful beauty entered from the opening. She was clad in flowered satin, after the Egyptian manner, with pendants in her ears, a necklace of large pearls, and bracelets of gold set with rubies, with a rod in her hand. She moved towards the frying-pan to the great amazement of the cook, who continued fixed by the sight, and striking one of the fish with the end of the rod, said, Fish, fish, are you in duty? The fish having answered nothing, she repeated these words, and then the four fish lifted up their heads and replied, Yes, yes, if you reckon, we reckon, if you pay your debts, we pay ours, if you fly, we overcome, and are content. As soon as they had finished these words, the lady overturned the frying-pan, and returned into the open part of the wall, which closed immediately and became as it was before. The cook was greatly frightened at what had happened, and coming a little to herself, went to take up the fish that had fallen on the hearth, but found them blacker than coal, and not fit to be carried to the sultan. This grievously troubled her, and she fell to weeping most bitterly. Alas, said she, what will become of me? If I tell the sultan what I have seen, I am sure he will not believe me, but will be enraged against me. While she was thus bewailing herself, the grand vizier entered, and asked her if the fish were ready. She told him all that had occurred, which we may easily imagine astonished him, but without speaking a word of it to the sultan, he invented an excuse that satisfied him, and sending immediately for the fisherman, bid him bring four more such fish, for a misfortune had befallen the others, so that they were not fit to be carried to the sultan. The fisherman, without saying anything of what the genie had told him, in order to excuse himself from bringing them that day, told the vizier, he had a great way to go for them, but would certainly bring them on the morrow. Accordingly, the fisherman went away by night, and coming to the lake, threw in his nets betimes next morning, took four fish like the former, and brought them to the vizier at the hour appointed. The minister took them himself, carried them to the kitchen, and shutting himself up with the cook, she gutted them, and put them on the fire, as she had done the four others the day before. When they were fried on one side, and she had turned them upon the other, the kitchen wall again opened, and the same lady came in with the rod in her hand, struck one of the fish, spoke to it as before, and all four gave her the same answer. After the four fish had answered the young lady, she overturned the frying pan with her rod, and retired into the wall. The grand vizier, being witness to what had passed, this is too wonderful and extraordinary, said he, to be concealed from the sultan. I will inform him of this prodigy. The sultan, being much surprised, sent immediately for the fisherman and said to him, 
Friend, cannot you bring me four more such fish? The fisherman replied, If your majesty will be pleased to allow me three days, I will do it. Having obtained his time, he went to the lake immediately, and at the first throwing in of his net he caught four fish, and brought them directly to the sultan, who was so much the more rejoiced, as he did not expect them so soon, and ordered him four hundred pieces of gold. As soon as the sultan had the fish, he ordered them to be carried into his closet, with all that was necessary for frying them, and having shut himself up with the vizier, the minister gutted them, put them into the pan, and when they were fried on one side, turned them upon the other. Then the wall of the closet opened, but instead of the young lady there came out a black, in the habit of a slave, and of a gigantic stature, with a great green staff in his hand. He advanced towards the pan, and touching one of the fish with his staff, said with a terrible voice, Fish, are you in your duty? At these words the fish raised up their heads and answered, Yes, yes, we are. If you reckon, we reckon. If you pay your debts, we pay ours. If you fly, we overcome and are content. The fish had no sooner finished these words than the black threw the pan into the middle of the closet and reduced the fish to a coal. Having done this, he retired fiercely, and entering again into the aperture, it closed, and the wall appeared just as it did before. After what I have seen, said the sultan to the vizier, it will not be possible for me to be easy. These fish, without doubt, signify something extraordinary. He sent for the fisherman, and when he came, said to him, Fisherman, the fish you have brought us make me very uneasy. Where did you catch them? Sir, answered he, I fished for them in a lake situated betwixt four hills, beyond the mountain that we see from hence. Knowest thou not that lake? said the sultan to the vizier. No, replied the vizier. I never so much as heard of it, although I have for sixty years hunted beyond that mountain. The sultan asked the fisherman how far the lake might be from the palace. The fisherman answered it was not above three hours' journey. Upon this assurance, the sultan commanded all his court to take horse, and the fisherman served them for a guide. They all ascended the mountain, and at the foot of it they saw, to their great surprise, a vast plain that nobody had observed till then, and at last they came to the lake, which they found to be situated betwixt four hills, as the fisherman had described. The water was so transparent that they observed all the fish to be like those which the fisherman had brought to the palace. The sultan stood upon the bank of the lake, and after beholding the fish with admiration, demanded of his courtiers if it were possible they had never seen this lake, which was within so short a distance of the town. They all answered that they had never so much as heard of it. Since you all agree that you never heard of it, and as I am no less astonished than you are at this novelty, I am resolved not to return to my palace till I learn how this lake came here, and why all the fish in it are of four colors. Having spoken thus, he ordered his court to encamp, and immediately his pavilion and the tents of his household were planted upon the banks of the lake. When night came, the sultan retired under his pavilion, and spoke to the grand vizier thus, Vizier, my mind is uneasy. This lake transported hither, the black that appeared to us in my closet, and the fish that we heard speak. All these things so much excite my curiosity, that I cannot resist my impatient desire to have it satisfied. To this end I am resolved to withdraw alone from the camp, 
and I order you to keep my absence secret. Stay in my pavilion, and tomorrow morning, when the emirs and courtiers come to attend my levy, send them away, and tell them that I am somewhat indisposed, and wish to be alone, and the following days tell them the same thing till I return. The Grand Vizier endeavored to divert the Sultan from this design. He represented to him the danger to which he might be exposed, and that all his labor might perhaps be in vain. But it was to no purpose. The Sultan was resolved. He put on a suit fit for walking, and took his scimitar, and as soon as he found that all was quiet in the camp, went out alone, and passed over one of the hills without much difficulty. He found the descent still more easy, and when he came to the plain, walked on till the sun arose, and then he saw before him, at a considerable distance, a vast building. He rejoiced at the sight, in hopes of receiving there the information he sought. When he drew near, he found it was a magnificent palace, or rather a strong castle, of black, polished marble, and covered with fine steel as smooth as glass. Being highly pleased that he had so speedily met with something worthy his curiosity, he stopped before the front of the castle and considered it with attention. He then advanced towards the gate, which had two leaves, one of them open. Though he might immediately have entered, yet he thought it best to knock. This he did at first softly, and waited for some time. But seeing no one, and supposing he had not been heard, he knocked harder the second time. And after that he knocked again and again. But no one yet appearing, he was exceedingly surprised for he could not think that a castle in such repair was without inhabitants. "'If there be no one in it,' said he to himself, "'I have nothing to fear, and if it be inhabited, I have wherewith to defend myself.' At last he entered, and when he came within the porch he cried, "'Is there no one here to receive a stranger, who comes in for some refreshment as he passes by?' He repeated the same words two or three times, but though he spoke very loud, he was not answered. The silence increased his astonishment. He came into a spacious court, and looked on every side for inhabitants, but discovered none. The sultan entered the grand halls, which were hung with silk tapestry. The alcoves and sofas were covered with stuffs of Mecca, and the porches with the richest stuffs of India, mixed with gold and silver. He came afterwards into a superb saloon, in the middle of which was a fountain, with a lion of massy gold at each angle. Water issued from the mouths of the four lions, and as it fell formed diamonds and pearls, resembling a jet d'eau, which, springing from the middle of the fountain, rose nearly to the top of a cupola painted in arabesque. The castle on three sides was encompassed by a garden, with parterres of flowers, shrubbery, and whatever could concur to embellish it and to complete the beauty of the place, an infinite number of birds filled the air with their harmonious notes, and always remained there, nets being spread over the garden and fastened to the palace to confine them. The sultan walked from apartment to apartment, where he found everything rich and magnificent. Being tired with walking, he sat down in a veranda or arcade closet, which had a view over the garden, reflecting what he had already seen, and then beheld when suddenly he heard the voice of one complaining, in lamentable tones. He listened with attention and heard distinctly these words. O oh, fortune, thou who wouldst not suffer me longer to enjoy a happy lot, forbear to persecute me, and by a speedy death put an end to my sorrows. Alas, is it possible that I am still alive, 
after so many torments as I have suffered? The sultan rose up, advanced towards the place whence he heard the voice, and coming to the door of a great hall, opened it, and saw a handsome young man, richly habited, seated upon a throne raised a little above the ground. Melancholy was painted on his countenance. The sultan drew near and saluted him. The young man returned his salutation by an inclination of his head, not being able to rise, at the same time saying, My lord, I should rise to receive you, but am hindered by sad necessity, and therefore hope you will not be offended. My lord, replied the sultan, I am much obliged to you for having so good an opinion of me. As to the reason of your not rising, whatever your apology be, I heartily accept it. Being drawn hither by your complaints, and afflicted by your grief, I come to offer you my help. Would to God that it lay in my power to ease you of your trouble. I would do my utmost to effect it. I flatter myself that you will relate to me the history of your misfortunes. But inform me first of the meaning of the lake near the palace, where the fish are of four colors. Whose this castle is, how you came to be here, and why you are alone." Instead of answering these questions, the young man began to weep bitterly. "'How inconstant is fortune!' cried he. "'She takes pleasure to pull down those she has raised. Where are they who enjoy quietly the happiness which they hold of her, and whose day is always clear and serene?' The sultan, moved with compassion to see him in such a condition, prayed him to relate the cause of his excessive grief. "'Alas, my lord,' replied the young man, how is it possible but I should grieve, and my eyes be inexhaustible fountains of tears? At these words, lifting up his robe, he showed the sultan that he was a man only from the head to the girdle, and that the other half of his body was black marble. The sultan was much surprised when he saw the deplorable condition of the young man. That which you show me, said he, while it fills me with horror, excites my curiosity, so that I am impatient to hear your history, which, no doubt, must be extraordinary. And I am persuaded that the lake and the fish make some part of it. Therefore I conjure you to relate it. You will find some comfort in so doing, since it is certain that the unfortunate find relief in making known their distresses. I will not refuse your request, replied the young man, though I cannot comply without renewing my grief. But I give you notice beforehand to prepare your ears, your mind, and even your eyes for things which surpass all that the imagination can conceive. End of section nine.